The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Okay, so here we go. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll look in our Bible study tonight. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and for what uh, you have recorded about your son's talk with his disciples and uh, um, how that affects us, uh, how those words that he was sharing with them were looking forward to this time in which we live and the relationship that we have with your son, with you, and with the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for these things. And amen. So in John 15, I'm going to start off with verse 1. And we'll read John 15 down through where I'm hoping to get to tonight. Um, I'm just going to lay down, I think. John chapter 15 and verse 1. I am the vine, the true one, and my father is the vine dresser or the farmer. Every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, he lifts it up or takes it. And every branch that is bearing fruit, he prunes it or cleans it that it might bear more fruit. You already are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, even as a branch is not able to bear fruit from itself, except that it should abide in the vine. In the same way, neither are you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches, the one abiding in me, and I in him. This one bears much fruit, because apart from me, or separated from me, you are not able to do not one thing. Except that someone should abide in me, he is cast outside, or we might say lesser, if a person uh, does not abide in me. He is cast outside like a branch. They are dried up, and they gather them, and they are thrown into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my utterances abide in you, then you will, then you will ask whatever you desire, and it will be done for you. By this, then, my Father is glorified, in order that you should bear much fruit, and that you should come to be my disciples." As my Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep or guard my commandments, then you will abide in my love, even as I have kept or guarded my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy might be in you, <coughs> Excuse me, and that your joy might be filled full. So that's kind of where I would like to get through those. We've already talked about the vine and branches relationship that he was talking about. And then last time that I was with you, which was a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the statement where he said um, in verse eight, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and that you should become my disciples. We were talking about what a disciple was, that during Jesus's earthly ministry, you could be a disciple and not be a believer. But today, well, let's just see by way of review, how many of you remember in all of the letters from the book of Romans through the rest of the Bible, how many times is the word disciple used? <coughs> what? Zero. Zero times it's used from the book of Romans on. You have it in the Gospels and you have it in Acts. And if I remember correctly, I think Ben's question is, why do you think it's used so seldom? And I think it's because God turned his attention to other language for us that we're described now as brothers. We're described as children. We're described as beloved. We're described as sanctified or saints. Those are the descriptions that he uses of us rather than looking as a disciple. And I still, this is my personal opinion, I think we ought to get rid of the word disciple because there's a whole bunch of baggage attached to that word disciple. If you were going to take the word disciple and translate it into modern English, what would you use? Disciple. 
Learner, a student, yeah, a student. Because that's what the word literally meant. It was a student. And the teacher, we think of Jesus, he was a student, or he was a teacher. John the Baptist was a teacher. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were teachers. So there were disciples of the Pharisees and Sadducees, or students of theirs, students of John the Baptist, and students of Jesus. And they all centered his teaching. During, in the Gospels, that teaching, that ministry of being a disciple or a student, this is very important for us to get this, in the Gospel time, Jesus was dealing primarily with whom? Jews. With Jews, with the people of Israel. As a nation. Well, who, who's he dealing with today? The church. The church. Okay. So what's the difference between the makeup of Israel and the makeup of the church? What are some things that make those two different? I'm kind of reviewing here. but The church isn't just one nation. The church is not just one nation. We are made up of many. people from many nations. Okay. Yeah. And the Jews were primarily the Jewish race, but it did have some proselytes. There were some proselytes, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Was a proselyte different? Proselyte was a person that wasn't born, born into that family, but they adhered to those people and practiced the stuff with them. Like Ruth. Ruth, yeah, she was a Moabitess. Yeah. Talking about how he dealt with them? Well, I'm just telling what's the difference? What What are some other differences between the church and Israel? Well, how God dealt with them? What? One. Believers. Okay, say it. We're believers. We're believers. You mean Israel wasn't believers? Israel was a nation. Some, Not all of them. Some of them were. And that's the big difference. If you're in the church in the body of Christ, everybody that's in the church is a believer. Now, that doesn't mean everybody that attends a church is a believer. But in the church or the body of Christ, you're only in the body of Christ. You're only in them, the church if you're a believer. Whereas in Israel, how did you get into Israel? Born. You were born. And you may or may not believe. So Israel was made up of believers and unbelievers. Now, that's, that's a real difference between when you hit the book of Acts. And it's interesting. Most scholars, even if they don't agree with us on everything else, most of them agree that when you come to the book of Acts, disciple is used exclusively of people who are believers in Jesus Christ. Whereas in the Gospels, they recognize that there were different kinds of disciples and not even all of Jesus' <coughs> disciples or students were believers. And we've seen that in John, that there were a lot of them. It said at the end of John 6, a lot of his disciples didn't believe in it. See? And so there were, he had a lot of disciples. So there's some really big differences in this. And I think it's important just as we review that, that we talk about this idea that if you, it says verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Can an unbeliever bear fruit? No. No, an unbeliever can't bear fruit. Only believers can bear fruit. So that you bear fruit and that you would become then my students. So when we come to the book of Acts, we're in John 15 and verse 8. So, so for us today, as believers like this, we have the potential to bear fruit. And we could, technically, in keeping with Jesus' words here in the book of Acts, we could describe ourselves as disciples. Although that, as I said, that's not the word that Paul really uses, and it's not the word that Peter and John use of us in their writings. They don't describe us. They, they, they have chosen to use other language, or we should say the Holy Spirit also has. So that brings us then with this idea of being his student and uh, bearing fruit brings us then to verse 9 tonight. It's very important for us to understand this. He's not making this a qualification 
of being his disciple. That's one of the things that oftentimes gets, gets missed, messed up in teaching in our churches today is that you get people in there that maybe they're believers, but they're then taught that you need to do these things if you want to be a disciple. If you're not doing those things, you're not a disciple of Jesus. And then if depending on the on who's teaching in their opinion, they may say, well, if you're not doing those things and you're not a disciple, then you're not saved because you're not doing these things. And I could point you to many people that are well-known, famous and such, that this is exactly what they teach. Okay. Um, Would that be the same, the word like discipleship? <clears throat> no, discipleship is a word meaning what you do to train a person as your, as a student. Discipleship is a word we have coined. It's based on a statement Jesus makes at the end of Matthew 28, where he actually uses a verb form of the word disciple, and he says, go into all the nations and disciple, or make disciples of all nations, teaching them to do all things that I've commanded you, and he says, and though I'm with you even under the edge of the So when Jesus is talking about discipleship, or when we talk about discipleship, if we're basing it on Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we're talking about what you what a person did in training a person. That's usually what people so usually in discipleship, somebody gets saved, you get a new person that's saved, now you sit down. You have a Bible study with them. You teach them the Christian life. You teach them how to read their Bible. I mean, you know, how do you read it? So a lot of people go, I still remember talking to a guy downtown, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. And he, I was uh, in, his, in his shop and he was working on something. And he goes, you know, he says, uh, I wanted to read the Bible. But my family said, well, you shouldn't read the Bible until you get a book to tell you how to read the Bible. He says, what do you think about that? And I said, you know what? I said, I think you ought to just read the Bible. I said, well, most people are more are, would be really surprised to realize it's not that hard to read it. Yeah. And I said, and I don't, I don't know that I would start in Genesis. I think I'd start in the Gospel of John. I, I would just say that because Genesis, people get reading, and where do they stop? Lots. Yeah. Well, well, okay, yeah. Well, okay, see, you're more, you, you are tougher, you push through to Leviticus. A lot of people stop in Genesis when they hit chapter 5 with all the so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, or chapter 11 where you got a whole bunch of begatting, or begetting or whatever. What? What? Oh, that's in chapter 10, Peggy says. Okay, yeah. So, so that's where people get stuck. And there's nothing wrong with that. That stuff's good. Or I tell people, when you get to those, if you want to read that chapter, read it. But you know what? If you just get to a lot of repetition, beginning, beginning, there's nothing wrong with skipping that. It's important because you know what all that does? Points to the land of Christ. It does. It actually historically ties all these people all the way back to Adam. Which, by the way, on well, not on Sunday, but in two Sundays, which is we're going to talk about genealogies because Paul tells Titus talks to Titus about it. But it's related to that, and we're going to understand why the why the whole issue of genealogies was such a big deal for How about those people. Genealogies. Genealogies. Yes, when when the kids when the kids used to do the walk through the Bible. Yeah. That's why I know oh. it's chapter oh. ten. What? That's why you know it's chapter ten. That's why. You know <clears throat> so, all of this, he's talking about what it meant to be a disciple, and that brings us into verse nine, John fifteen, verse nine. He says, even as the Father has loved me in this same way I have loved you. In other words, how did let's go back and ask the question. Remember, Jesus is already talking. He's talking to the disciples. 
What has he not done yet? What's the big thing Jesus hasn't yet done? Died. Hasn't died. He hasn't washed a feet. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Oh, he did. That, that, that's, that's, and married him again. Yes. So he hasn't died on the cross yet. None of that has happened. And yet, nine times out of ten, when we talk about what did Jesus do to love us, that's the first thing we run to. But Jesus, not only here, but already here in this upper room, he says, as I have, aorist tense in the Greek, meaning he's looking back to something that he sees as complete, as I have loved you. I already have loved you. What had he done to love them? In the upper room? Well, he washed their feet. <laughs> he washed their feet, yeah. Yeah, he already done that. Exactly. That's, why I thought, that's why I thought you were gonna, you were gonna throw that one in there. Yeah, he had washed, he had washed the disciples' feet. And the, the reason, and why is it so important for us to understand what he's referring to when he talks about that act of love? Well, he made himself lower than them. He served them, even though they looked at him as teacher, as master. Mm -hmm. And so then when he gives the command, what is his command? To love to So in other words... Make yourself lower. Yeah. Yeah, um, I just I walked with some with a couple a few people just last week through uh, Philippians, and he he makes that statement about Christ at the first part of Philippians too. Let this attitude be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, because he was God, didn't consider equality with God something he had to hold on to, snatch and go. No, no, I'm not letting go of this. But he actually emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a. A slave, he says, a form of a slave. See, one that's beneath. And he served, which is kind of the opening for all of what he's going to go through. All, all of chapter 2 of Philippians, it's four people that served. Christ that served, Paul that served, Timothy that served, Epaphroditus that served. It goes through four examples of people that really have, in one way or another, laid their life down for other people. Okay? So. It wasn't just that one instance where he was a servant. Yeah, but yeah, he laid down his life a lot of times, healing and and teaching, and to the point that many times, by at the end of a day, he was absolutely exhausted. Yes, just terribly exhausted. So we're drawing the connection to John fifteen verse nine, where Jesus is saying. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And we're, we're connecting this, so have I loved you, to these types of actions. That's right. Service. So the question that comes for me is, what is, what is he referring to as the Father having loved him? And that's the question that this strives to. What does that imply about the Father? That he serves. That the Father is served. And I'm going to be honest in what I've gone through in thinking through this. I don't exactly know where to send you for a good example of what the Father did. We just have to take, take Jesus' word that in some way, the Father loved the Son by putting the Son ahead of himself. Which we don't think about that very often. We don't think about that very often, that the Father has done that. I can give you an example. In the future, the Father will do something similar to that. So keep your finger here and turn to Philippians 2 that we were just referring to. Now this is a future example. He's talking about something the Father had already done for him. 
Philippians chapter 2, and let's go to verse 8. It says, And he humbled himself and become an obedient, even obedient unto death, a cross kind of death. Wherefore also God has highly exalted him and graciously given to him a name above every name. It's a, it's a name above every name. In order that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those that are in heaven and those that are upon the earth and those on the earth. And every tongue should confess out that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now when it says every knee will bow and every tongue, how many is that? Yeah, yeah. In other words, there's going to be at some point with every person that's ever lived on the face of the earth, every one of them is going to recognize who Jesus is. I would... I would suggest if you went over to Revelation chapter 20 at the end of the chapter and you have the great white throne and you have the dead that are all resurrected to stand in judgment before Jesus who is sitting on the throne. And we know Jesus is the one judging because he tells us that in John. The Father has committed all judgment to the Son. So the, so the Son is the one that's doing the judging, not the Father. Everybody with me? No, Pepper's making noise. Oh, <laughs> Jesus is doing the judging. He's on that throne. Every single person that stands at the great white throne in judgment, every single one of them, all of them, go to the lake of fire. Because that judgment is only a judgment for unbelievers. There's What? For dead ones, yeah. There's no believers that stand at the great white throne. But what does this state, what does this verse say about those people that are standing there? Are they going to stand there? And are they going <coughs> to... Flip God off and go, you, you're good for nothing, God. Yeah, they're going to recognize everything that they've ever denied about Jesus Christ. They're going to recognize it's true and they will acknowledge it. And it's not that he's putting his, it's not, you know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I had a friend, I had a friend <laughs> that used to get me and he put his arm around me like this and he sit and he'd go and I'm like this, he goes, Tim, say, say, and it was the name of his uncle. You know, you ever say, say uncle, but I didn't say, he didn't say, make me say uncle, he made me say the name of his uncle. Like that. And I, every time I was like, this week I'm not going to do it. This week I'm not going to do it. Every week he'd do that. He was bigger than me, he was stronger than me, he could hold me, I couldn't get out of that. And he would just, like that. I went to church with the guy, you know, so I'd put up with this for, I'd say, a couple of years. Maybe not every week, but let's say every other week. Okay. Uh, like this. I did that. I said I said what he wanted me to say, but I said it in protest. <laughs> I didn't say it willingly. I'm convinced when it says here that all these people will bow their knee and that they will do it, it's not that Jesus has to come up and put his hands on there and force them down to their knee. No. They all do this willingly. They all willingly acknowledge who he is. The, the point, I think, and this is significant about this, the scriptures never say that they do that to God the Father or to the Spirit. It's something that is true for the Son, that they acknowledge who he is and what he's done. Because he's the one, really, that did the work to save them. It's not that the Father and the Spirit had nothing to do with that. And creation. But it's his work. Pardon me? And creation. And creation. Christ. Yeah, oh, and he's a creator, too. Yeah, okay, I get it. Yeah, okay. Um, 
So I, just as, as an example, this would be one example, but this is future yet. This is future. When we're over here in, does anybody have a question on this before we flip back to John 15? We go back over to John 15 and we look at this statement here that he says, as the Father has loved me, in some way the Father has, has put himself beneath the Son or given the Son an exalted position. This is an important statement, I think, when you talk about, the, for Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity, wouldn't, wouldn't bother talking to an unsaved person about this. This doesn't do them any good. But for you and I as a believer, sometimes we struggle with the Trinity that we always look, oh, the Trinity is this. There's the boss, there's his son, and there's the servant. No, it's the Father, it's the Son, and it's the Spirit. They all are equal. But even though they are equal, they still relate. I mean, the Son obeyed the Father when he came to this world. That's what part of what Philippians 2 is about. But in the same way, when you understand this, here he's saying that the Father actually has done something where he has actually put the Son in a position that's exalted, from at least from somebody's perspective. Right, so that's, the, that's, I mean... Isn't that going to be Christ's perspective? As he has loved me, so it's going to be Christ's right, perspective. Right, right, but I'm just saying when it says that as the Father has loved me, I was thinking from our perspective, we look at it, well, wow, the Father's put the Son over, then some way he's serving him when we put this together? Right, well, and then here Jesus is saying the Father, if, that, if that's what we're saying that he's talking about, we're saying he's that Jesus is saying the Father has served me. Yeah. And when he has done that in history, I, I, I don't know. I wish I had a chapter and verse that I, I'm. There may be somebody smarter than me that knows. Right. It would when be all this. speculation. Anything we could come up with would be speculation. Right. But like, if I'm thinking through, even. Um, that the Son is the visible incarnate God. He's the God that we can relate to. He's the, he's the parts of God that, that we're like, oh yeah, okay, I, yeah. I get that God. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. it's the same God, but you understand what I'm saying. But I think you all you all managed you you all picked up on the on the the issue the thing that I think is important as the Father has loved me in some way the Father did something where he where he in some way or another did something for the Son in some act of service in the same way that the Son showed love to us and exactly what that moment in time is it it might it might go back to the statement that he made in this gospel back in John five where he says the Father has committed. We we're referencing this with the great white throne basis. The Father has committed or given over all judgment to the Son. You imagine what that means for the Father to to say, all the judging, you do that. You're the one. I was just thinking about when Jesus was tested in the wilderness, and at the end of it, it says the devil left him, and angels came and began to minister him. Well, they don't just do whatever they want. They had to be sent by someone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if the father did that, he would be... That also might be another good example of this. Yeah. So I have a reference that goes back to John 5.20. Back 
Oh, I thought you were going to read it for us. <laughs> John 5.20. Oh, and I see, I think we're going back to this passage where I was saying, for the Father is fond of the Son, loves Him. He's displayed all of His things to Him, which He does. Even greater things than this He will display to Him. Greater works, excuse me. So that you may be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and makes them alive, so also the Son makes alive those whom He dwells. And then verse 22. And the Father does not does not judge not one person. You see that? The Father doesn't... We've got a double negative in here. We have a ude, which means the Father does not, and He doesn't judge. And then we have the second negative, not one person. So it's a double negative, which in English you can't get away with double negative because that's bad English. But in Greek, you can pile negatives up to really say no, 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 no. And it's not a problem. He says the Father doesn't judge anyone, but He has given all judgment over to the Son so that all men might honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So in other words, the, 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 the Son has the ability or has been given authority to do something that the Father himself could do but he doesn't actually exercise that. I think, and I think one other important thing just to throw out about this is the the bobblehead hippie Jesus. You know that idea that a lot of modern. Uh, I just listened to a, I just listened to a real good interview a couple weeks ago of Sean McDowell with um, a progressive Christian. I don't know if you guys know what a progressive Christian is. Did you listen to that too? And to me, it was really amazing because that progressive Christian, Sean McDowell got down to some hard things after this guy went through and described him. He says, do you believe in the literal bodily resurrection? He goes, well, some days I do, but some days I'm not sure. In other words, he says, did Jesus really get up out of a grave? He goes, I don't know. He says, most of the time I would say no, but once in a while, he says, every once in a while on Easter, I get really excited about it and think maybe, yeah. This is what a progressive... So they're not Christian, by the way. They're not Christian. That guy, if he really says that, According to First John, that's an antichrist. But nonetheless, the point being is when I say that in that regard, um, that guy likes, that progressive Christians like Jesus, but they like the hippie Jesus. They like the Jesus. It's just like everybody's buddy and we're all good. And hey, you know, everybody get on board the hippie Jesus bus and we'll be like the Partridge family and sing songs down the road and have a good time. Some of you may not know who the Partridge Family is. I'm not going to explain that because I'll get caught up in one of the greatest TV shows in my childhood. <laughs> not true. But anyway, but the, this is the point. Jesus is setting this out over in John 5 that he's the judge. He's the judge. Whenever there's judgment, he's the judge. The Father has committed that. And I don't believe that just that that meant that the Father was the, was the judge or that the Father committed that judgment from this point on. I think that that judgment goes back into history. So when Sodom and Gomorrah falls, before it falls, remember, there are three persons that show up at Abraham's tent. Right. One of them's God, and two of them are angels that are accompanying him. Who is that person that's God that's talking there? God the Son. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that, didn't he? In John 8, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. And those guys, how did Abraham see your day? You're not even 50 years old. They got incensed with Jesus. They knew exactly what he meant when he said that. But he's the one that showed up, and he's the one then. Those angels didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That was under the verdict, under the judgment of God the Son. Those angels went down there to, to investigate and see if, well, are there 10 righteous people down there? No, there was one righteous guy. One righteous guy. 
Okay. So, all of this, let's go back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, so he says in verse 9, Even as the Father has loved me, I have loved you, which we've already talked about that. He laid down his life he, by washing their feet. He got down there, did something tangible that we can do. He didn't ask us to take a bullet for your brother and sister in Christ. He asked you to lay your life down by serving. He says, so abide in my love. Which we're going to come back to that in just a second. Verse 10. If you guard or keep my commandments, and remember the word keep, this word keep does not mean do, because we have texts that have keep and do. Keep tereo means to keep it safe. And how many times have I used that illustration? I'm going to go, I, this, this happened many years ago that I was going to um, do one of the fun runs in Royal City and I got down there and I realized I had brought my stupid Timex watch that Peggy always used to give me those beautiful Timex watches that I love. I still have one in the headboard. And I didn't want that to get all gunky and sweaty. And I don't remember who I gave it to, but it was somebody I knew I could trust because I was down there, it was in the, this one of those morning runs. So I was, I didn't have any family down there to cheer me on, you know. <laughs> like they're going to do that. No. Come at the end, come at the end of the path. No. But I handed it to somebody that was there. I said, would you mind holding this till I get back? I don't really want this to get all dunked up. And what I meant by keep it is I didn't mean them to do anything. I didn't mean them to reset it and fix stuff on it. I just wanted them to keep it safe. <clears throat> that's what this word terao meant, meant to keep safe. And so he says that's what he, what first, the first thing he wants you to do is I want you to keep, keep safe my commandment. Now we've talked about this before, but we come back to this. Why is it important that you and I guard or keep safe his command. Well, how many how many commands did he leave did he leave us with? Just the one. He really left us with that one command. Now it takes different forms because he he ends up calling it commandments, but it's the it's the fact that it starts off with this command to love one another. This isn't a command to love the world. This is a command to love other believers. Um, I was just listening to um, no. I was just listening to um, Kevin Jeffries, our friend from Florida. I was listening to him in in uh, just a second here. Oh, I can't. Anyway, um, I was just listening to him this afternoon, and he was talking about the fact that he says you constantly are just dealing with and running into to Christians and churches that are trying to reinvent how you do church, how you do Christianity. We're always, uh, in fact, Lewis and I were even talking about that a little bit here when I was eating supper, that, that, that there's things that, the things that God asks of us and says of us are like, I know you say that, but if I do that, this is what's gonna happen. And it's gonna be counterproductive. We're in the 21st century. Can't we figure a different way to do that? And you know what? You find out in the end, still do it God's way even though it's not always the way you want to do it that the, that the potential result is better and sometimes it doesn't turn out the way you'd like to see it turn out and sometimes it does and so, it's it, oh, I just had kind of a question um, slash comment so <clears throat> when it talks about guarding the commandment for Christians isn't that like that's like the crux of the Christian life is to 
love one another or Christ love. So when you're guarding that, is that like you're watching out that that's your motive, that you're doing things that way? Or is that what guarding is? That could be part of it, yeah. For you as an individual to go, am I doing this out of love? Am I doing this out of love? Checking your motive. Yeah. Sorry. And, and, I, I, and I have a friend that used to, I'd say something to him once when I said, hey, do you want to help with this? And that friend would, would then, his response would be, I don't know if I can do it in love. So maybe I shouldn't help. And I'm like, well, do it in love then. Well, that's easier said than done. I said, well, <laughs> it is easier said than, or it actually isn't hard. You know how to abide in who you are in Christ. You know how to abide so you can actually have the spirit produce that love and have the right motive. I've, I've gone from the wrong motive to the right motive like that. Cherishing it keeps it in mint condition. Yeah, you're, you're keeping it safe. So, so, I, so that's part of it. I think the other part of it, and this is going back to what Kevin was talking about, that there's a lot of times, there's a lot of times as believers that we, we hear this din from the world on, on how we can do church. Do church this way and we will like you. Do church like this. And they're constantly putting us on. And so we, we're constantly reinventing the church. And the thing is, I always think the church is at the back of the pack. We're never out front in the race. I don't know, I don't know how state cross country is, but you've, always, you've told me times, sometimes you've had some state races where the, the leader is way out front of everybody else. And, then you've, and I've never been there. So you, I'm assuming you have a lot of people that kind of trail in towards the end, even, even if they've made it to state. Yeah. And I always picture that that's where the church is. And the church always thinks, no, we're cutting edge. No, we're not. Because we're always waiting for, we, we see the trends that the world has gone to, but we see it even as that trend is starting to kind of die off. And so now we try to introduce that and catch up. It doesn't work. And we ought to forget that. We ought to just focus on, how did Jesus say we'll be known as his disciples? By loving one another. That, see, that's the whole thing that Jesus says in First John, or, or John says in First John two, keeping the command never goes out of style. Everything else goes out of style. We can change up our music thing. There was a time in Europe when they went from organs. Well, there was a time when they introduced organs. Oh, that was a whole new thing for people. Then they went from organs to pianos. You guys might not think this is a big deal. But I mean, I've been in churches where, where people were like organs only in churches because you know what the pianos were? They were a barroom instrument. How dare we play a barroom instrument in the church? Yeah, that was that. that. Sounds cool. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. And then, and then they brought along, then when I was kind of a kid, I was kind of in the era where they're introducing the guitar into church once in a while. And I remember... We had a guy come and, and do music one Sunday night at our church. I love this. I'm a teenager going, oh, I love this. But I remember the pastor after that guy was gone going, we're never doing that again. The guitar is a rock and roll instrument, oh. you know, and stuff like and, and I'm just using if there's a drum set. Oh, no, and that, no. hap and that happened in Royal stuff. City. <laughs> we had two elderly couples from... from uh, from Mattawa or Desert Air that came up and so I don't know if, if maybe Gary and Leslie remember those because this is a long time they'd be the only ones that would, that would remember this but they came up and they did music a couple times at our church and the one the one I don't know if it was one of the ladies that sit there boom -tsh, boom -tsh, yeah. her, with her bass and her one snare and she played this up there and I'm just like I love the music they did music this older couple 
and one of them's on an accordion. Yeah, and they're, they're playing the music up there. We did the music. And one of the men in the church said, we are never doing that again. We send, we send missionaries to drum playing heathen in Africa. We are, don't introduce dumbs into, the, into oh God's goodness. church. So I'm just saying, this happened at our church. But this is like, this is like 30 years this ago. This never happened at our this is, church. This is 30 years ago. You know, the, the best. <laughs> <laughs> you give when it time. When music was first introduced, the music, it was two bar rooms music. Most of the modern songs we sing, yeah. Most yeah. of the worship songs like, that we sing today, the hymns, they had their origin in bar, bar rooms. Especially like the music that, that. that John and Charles Wesley wrote. Yes, yes, the Wesleys. Do you remember 15 plus years ago when the missionary community played, maybe as Amazing Grace, on the saw? Huh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, Mr. Mr. Updike, yeah. 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 That was, it was really good. Yeah. The whole point of all this is, is the world system is constantly changing. And whatever we do as a church, if we are just doing something out of love for other believers, sharing. I, I still remember the first time I asked Ben, hey, I knew he'd played the guitar for the, the kids group up at the school. And I said, hey, would you bring music to church this week? And he brought it. And I was just like, oh, this is fun. This is great. I like these songs like this. There were a few people that were like, oh, I don't know about, well, I don't know about that. They weren't so, they, what? Are you, are you talking about our Bible study? Yeah, the high school Bible study. I knew he he I knew you guys had, had sung I, I happened to be up Katie goes, Ben brought his guitar to play and we sang a song this morning. She thought that was pretty cool. I said, Oh, that's I didn't cool. know he could do that. So that's, that's what awesome. I asked him. Anyway. I'm using music as an example. But the thing is it's just all kinds of stuff. We've got that projector up front that we proje that I project stuff up. You know there are people that don't like that? They think that's completely inappropriate to church, just like we used to have the overheads with the overlays. There were people that thought that was inappropriate. So there's all kinds of stuff that people look at when we do these things. You know, if we take things of the world and we use them in carrying out the, op the, uh, the goal that Christ gave us to love one another, I think these things can be okay, right? I think we can do a lot of different things. If we're really doing it in love, we can, there's a, a variety of things that we can do in the way that we carry on that, that work in the church. Okay? But I've heard, you know, I've heard people say things like, you go to these mega churches and it's just such a big production and you have this big, massive stage. Isn't that the same thing? Yes. Is that the same thing as like, just saying like however you do it? At that level versus the level that your church can only do it at, but you try to do it the best that you can with the instruments and the certain things, like isn't that the same? <laughs> Scaling it up. <clears throat> I, I, you know, I think your point's a good point. It all comes down to motivation. You right. know, we, we can't assess, but I will say like my brother's church, they put in a new lighting system. Yeah. It's great, it's yeah. cool. And, I uh, totally want stage lights, I'm not even joking. <laughs> well, it's like a background light yeah. system. Yeah. And uh, It's LEDs by the... Yeah, it wasn't a huge... Behind the stage. Yeah. Huge cost. Looks really great. And I don't have a problem, you know, but I, if their motive's like, we want to blow the tops off this town and, you know, or be the best looking church or whatever, then, you know. We're going to look so cool. We're looking cool. We're looking better than that church. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it comes down to when you're singing, what are you singing and the I think words so. and what they mean. Mm -hmm. um, 
That's what I look at. Yeah. Which I've appreciated. I, I'll go back to Ben here since I was using him a little bit ago. I've, that that in the time that he's been there, I mean, we've had a variety of songs that your family's taught us. But there have been some of the songs that, that Ben's come, and, and I know this song. We get down here, and I can see that they've intentionally changed a word. Sometimes I change words. I heard um, Josh do that on Sunday. We sang that Keith Green song that, I, that, they, that they have us sing once in a while. And uh, does everybody know who Keith Green was? I mean, you want to talk about a 1970s hippie? I mean, a big, huge hair light and beard. And... Oh, he was Jewish. I, I didn't know oh, that. Yeah. I guess I didn't know that about him. Anyway. He, you're that, singing Jewish worship songs at your no, church? No, no, no. He was a... <laughs> no, he was... He, he, was a, he was a Christian. He was a Christian, but he, but, but he just kind of wrote music that sort of was hippie, Jesus culture, cutting-edge music in the 70s and into the early 80s. Um, when he, anyway, but um, and I don't know how I got Keith you Green. Oh, we were singing that, but sword. but there was a word king up there, my king, and I heard Josh yeah, yeah. and I sang it. I was just switch it from my king to the king, and then Josh, I heard him say my lord. lord. And we've made those that changes, and I've heard all kinds of people make those. I've heard Ben make changes like that. Sometimes we don't make those changes, but I think what what Leslie's saying when we're doing things. We want to do it in a way that reflects God's truth and what God's doing more than just about anything else when we're doing all this. <clears throat> now, you go, okay, how did we chase this rabbit trail about yeah. all this stuff? It's because he says, if you guard my, keep my commandment. And so what we're talking about is the number one thing we should be focused on, we focus on all this other stuff. But the number one thing we should be focused on is, is I, am I loving these other people? Not liturgy. It's, it's not liturgy. We're not focused on liturgy. We're not focused on the environment. We're not focused on any of that. We're focused on, am I here to serve these people? And um, Carmen, most of you know Carmen from our church, but she was in a very large church down in the Sacramento area, and she said the number one reason she left is that she figured 90% of the people there from her experience were there for the experience. They were there like they were attending a concert. They weren't there to serve. They weren't there to be used by God. And she says, in fact, a lot of them, the minute the pastor would get up to speak, she says there was a whole bunch of people that would get up and file outside. Because cause they were there for the music part. They didn't want to listen to the word. And she thought, and that's when she started kind of, so that's when she started talking to people and finding out people were there for the, for the wrong thing. And when we come to church, and I pray this, you guys hear me pray this almost every week. If I'm, if I'm opening with prayer, that the people that are, including myself, I'm not pointing my finger at you, that you're there thinking about how will God use me today in somebody else's life. Not that I'm sitting going, I'm going to go minister to that person after church. Because <laughs> sometimes it's a person that's going to come up to you. There have been Sundays that I'm thinking, I need to go talk to that person as soon as church is over. And before I can get down and over to talk to that person, somebody's up there and they're going, hey. And I'm like, and the next thing, a half hour later or 45 minutes later, because I, Tim talks a long time. You're, you've been dealing with somebody else because that's what God had in store. And I hope, not just on Sundays, but every day you ought to be doing this. And so when he says to guard or keep my commands, and it's commands plural because remember, he stated this commandment in various ways about loving, that you and I really need to guard this. I would say the other thing I always think is important about this, and I just heard somebody just yesterday when I was out mowing the lawn 
uh, Lewis and I were talking about listening to podcasts, and I was listening to one yesterday because my good ones ran out, and I said, okay, let's try this one and listen to this, and I got 15 minutes into it, and the guy's going, well, our number one charge is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, all thy mind, and thy neighbors yourself. And I'm, I'm not saying it's bad because Jesus said that's the top command of the law, but I'm always like, that's the top command of the law. Our command is to love like Christ loved, which takes this command and raises the bar like this. We've talked about that. And I think that's another reason we need to guard that. And I don't think that that means that if your pastor is up front and I botch that, that you go, wait a second, that's not right. <laughs> but I think you as an individual, you need to guard that and go, oh, that's not really it. For yourself. For yourself. Really, I think so. And is it is it an opportunity sometimes for us to maybe take <laughs> friends aside and say, hey, that's have you ever considered that Christ kind of um, trumped that command? Over here in John 13, he gave that command in an answer to what's the top command of law, but this is at the end of his ministry, and now he introduces this command, which takes it up a bit. Well, one of them, the, the law one, is by the efforts of men, and the one with the, from Jesus can only be done through the work of the Spirit in you. That's right. And so... It's, it would be impossible for them back then to be able to love the way that we're told to love. That's right. That's right. So, verse 10, If you keep my commandments or guard my commandments, then you will abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commands. So there were things that the Father asked the Son to be doing when he was down here. I would say some of those things, at the very least, we, I'm not going to go and review all that, but remember few months ago. I don't remember how long ago we last went through that. Year. Yeah, yeah, last year. We looked at all those places where where Jesus says, I came to do my Father's will. I came to do the Father's will. I came to do the works of the Father. I did that. And, that, and John, just in the Gospel of John, he says that. So think of how many times the Son came down here and he did what the Father gave him to do. And I would say that, that this at least includes all those things that the Father gave the Son to do when he walked the earth. And he gave those commands as I, he says, as I have kept my Father's commands, and I abide then in his love. So now, here's the question here. This might take the rest of the time. I don't know. We're talking about abiding. We've already talked about abiding. Give me a definition of abiding that he uses. Rest. To be at ease. That's it. To be at ease. Yeah. At ease. To be at ease. Okay. And I, you know, and I, anyway, I don't, I don't need to illustrate it. We've already talked about that. Okay. So it's being at ease there, being at ease in who, when back up in verses four and five, it's being at ease in Christ. So it's being at ease in what the Father, what the Father says about you. What the Father says about you in Christ. That's what it is, being okay with that. Now let's take this down to verses nine and 10. Abiding in my love, which he mentions twice here, once in nine and once in 10. I mean, what does that mean then? You're at ease. Loving the way that Christ loved. Yeah. Serving others, wouldn't that be right? Okay. I, I, I don't think so. In I'm my just gonna love. No, so in the way that he loved us. At yeah. Being, well, being at ease in how he loved us. Yeah. Now. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. Is this talking to just those men that were in the room? 
No, because I think most of what he's saying in here is looking forward to what's going to happen with the whole body of Christ. Because otherwise that command wouldn't mean anything to us because he didn't get down and wash my feet. He only washed their feet. So so here's... so I guess here, I mean, that's fine, but then I'm like, okay, so how do we decide? How do what, we decide? What's just for the disciples and what's, what are we supposed to all listen to? And, and see, and, and that's, my, that's my point, or that's what I'm answering is, is I, think, I think this upper room is really speaking, speaking to the disciples immediately, but as he says in John 17, this is not just about them. It's about those who are going to believe in me through their word. Because he's introducing the church. He's introducing the truth that the truth that the church is resting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so maybe this is so, a bit okay. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. By my love. So he had just washed their feet. So that was just for them. Right. I showed you how to be a servant. So, but we know it's for us because then we can read. Wrote. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can use an example of when he was washing the feet. Um, he went to wash Peter's feet and says, Oh, no, no, I can't wash my feet. I should be doing this for you and blah, blah, blah. And he said, Well, Peter, I need to do this. Part of you. So, in other words, Peter wasn't inviting in his love. He was saying, You're not, I'm not worthy of this. I need to be doing this for you. Excellent. And, you know, and as believers, we have, you know, I'm sure you've heard and maybe even felt it yourself. Well, I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve this. No, you don't. But He gave it to you, so be comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's accept it. Say thank you. You know, lots of times someone will do something nice for us. Oh, you don't. You can't do. I. I don't want to do. No. I. You know. I don't need. Well, abide in this love. I like it, Leslie. Be comfortable in it. Yeah, because when you say thank you, yeah. you're recognizing God's grace. Good yeah. grace. Yeah. Eucharist. Good grace. Because his grace comes out of his love. Yeah. Don't be a Peter. Yeah. Don't be a Peter. Yeah, Peter. I mean, it was either don't do this or wash all of me then. Yes. Yeah. So he's always the... <laughs> Extremist. Extremist, yeah. yeah. Oh. Peter was a believer. I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not saying he wasn't. I'm just right. saying <laughs> he had those that same human tendencies that we, you know, all the disciples represent different people. They're not all the same. And we can have those tendencies too. And if it would have been Judas that would have said no, not, then we go, oh, okay, it's unsafe people. But I think your point is really good. It's Peter, a person that is a believer without, he's the one person that has spoken on behalf of the disciples when he, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Well, they say you're Elijah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. He says, but who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He goes, yep. He says, in flesh and blood didn't reveal this. My father revealed this to you. That's why you got it, Peter. So Peter's a believer without a doubt. And so if I understand that then, Here's Peter that's refusing Christ's love. Which the point is we all should take that. We probably all at one time or another are going to find ourselves going, no, <laughs> I got this. I don't need help. So is, are you saying that when 
when you refuse a uh, a help that another believer is offering you, then that is not abiding. Like a Peter, that you're not abiding in. You're not love. comfortable in that. You're not. Yeah. 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 You're not comfortable in it. Okay. We, in fact, we had. <laughs> knew it'd get around to the right person. Who is it? Our question. Our, uh, what's, what, oh, what stays what at men's group? Oh, stays, you can't what, talk about it. Well, okay. you and I already talked about it. I already told him, no, I did not. Look at him tattling on himself. <laughs> I'm going to get kicked out. Uh, okay. uh, but our topic the other night was, one of the second topic was, how do you ask for help? Yes. How do you ask for help? And right off the bat, one of the people, I was going to say his name, but I'm not going to mention him now, but one of the people said, he says, yeah, he says, the problem with asking for help is my pride. He pointed right here. He said, my pride. Yeah. He's not pointing at me. He's pointing at himself. Not. He says, "My pride," and I said, and he says, and he says, and it's not pride that I think I'm better. It's pride that I don't want to. I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to bother them like this. And so we had we had pretty good conversation back and yes. forth for that. Kept us busy for at least a half hour talking about that one, and uh, and I and I think that and I was. I told, I've quoted Dwight Vanderwerf several times, and Dwight says his mom and dad taught him well. You are there at the doorstep to help the person in need the minute you find out, but you never ever ask for help yourself. <laughs> says Dwight, he says, and he says, that's been the hardest thing to unlearn is you help people whenever they need help, but he says, you also need to willingly ask for help. And he said that to me because, Peg, I'm working on some project because called Dwight. <laughs> no, I don't want to call Dwight. She goes, why not? Because Dwight's going to look at my mess and he's going to say, he's a cry for help. <laughs> this guy, <Yep>. you know. <laughs> and Dwight comes down and then Dwight just says, he says, everybody's like this. Everybody needs, everybody needs help sometimes. Everybody needs someone to come in. They, and we need to swallow our pride and just say, hey. So, yeah, in answer to your question, yeah. We, if we refuse other people's help, if we do that, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Let me ask two questions. Or I've got two passages of scripture down. Maybe you've got others. But here's something to ask. I'm just going to want to see where we are. we still got time. Um, can you tell me some ways that Jesus loves you? Okay. He hasn't got down and washed my feet like he did those disciples. But what are some things Jesus does in love for you? <clears throat> he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. He's with me always. I... I the, that's one I did not think of. I really like that one. And we have... Okay. Let's, go, let's go over to Hebrews 13. Thank you, Gary. Boy, man alive. Hebrews 13. This is the one I'm thinking. He also says this in Matthew 28 when he gives the disciples that charge over there. He says, and lo, King James, lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the world. But here in Hebrews 13... Hebrews chapter 13, and um, let's go to verse 5. Hebrews 13, 5. Do not be greedy. And that word greedy, a number of the words, this is the word, don't be, don't have a love of money. It's what, literally what this would be, or a love for silver, but money. Let your manner of life be one of contentment in the things that are present. In other words, whatever you have is enough. You don't always need to have something more. For, and this is right, for he said, absolutely not, double negative, absolutely not will I ever abandon you or forsake you. 
So, then being confident, the Lord is my helper. And that word helper is one that comes to a cry for help. When you go, help! He doesn't say, I'll get to you in a while. He comes, he comes to your cry for help. Which, by the way, in the book of Hebrews, he's used this word more than once of a cry for help. Primarily because these believers are not crying out for help. Because they think they have to go to the temple to do this. He says, and I will, not be, I will not be afraid then of what man will do to me. So yeah, this is, this is, thank you, Gary. This is a good one. The Lord is, never abandons us, ever. Are there times as believers that we kind of think that God's abandoned us? Yeah. When we go, when, let me ask you this. I'm not asking for anybody to share a story this way. But any of you, have any of you ever done something that you think the Lord's going to abandon me for what I've done here. The, not necessarily lose your salvation abandoned, but like, I'm on my own here, man. The Lord is not going to do anything. All right? I was just, yeah, we were just talking last week when I was out in Iowa. We were talking about God's discipline with us and I was saying I remember in college when I did something that was just we'll just put it it was bad I should never have done that but I did this and I was so absolutely convinced every time I crossed a road on campus I'm totally serious I was totally convinced that a car was going to run me down and kill me I'm not kidding I was that I was that upset because I knew what I did was wrong I don't want to know what you did you don't want to know what I did <laughs> but I'm just saying I'm well, let's, just, let's just put it this way. I mean, I had, I've lived a relatively squeaky clean life as a Christian. And so when I went and did this, this was such a big deal to me that I just I was convinced God was going to kill me. I figured God was just burning mad at me over this thing. And he could have. I mean, according to Scripture, I mean, he, he could have taken me home. He would have been... verse about that in the papers about the careful Yes, I think of that every time I read that passage in, in, in Hebrews 10. When you choose to be out of the will of God, you're going to end up with this nagging, worrying anxiety. And you may be judged. Yes. God may discipline you. Hebrews 10, 27. There's no sacrifice for the sin because Jesus already died for it, but you have a terrifying expectation of judgment. That's right. That's right. Okay, so, and then Leslie gave us the other one right before Gary gave his, and that is that he's always interceding for us. And turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And most of you are familiar with, I think most of you are familiar with this, and a lot of you are familiar with the verse that follows, but we don't know what precedes it here in Romans chapter 8. <coughs> Romans 38, and let's go to verse... Romans 8, and let's go to verse, um, I, did I say Romans 38? Yeah. Romans chapter 8. Let's go to verse 34. <laughs> That's in my other Bible. Okay. Romans 8, 34. It says, who is the one condemning? Christ Jesus, the one having died? rather being raised so it's looking at Christ's work he died he was raised 
He's now at the right hand of God, which that's how you are seated in Christ. You're there because he's seated there and God says you're seated in Christ. And he, here's that word, intercedes. And the great thing about that word intercedes, if you remember, it always is very specific. Supplication, the word deasis, I don't know. I look at Peggy, she's my wife. There's a lot of things I know about, but every once in a while she's going through stuff. And I honestly have to say, God, I don't know how to help her. I don't know what she needs. But you know, I just know that she's going through something that's really giving her a tough time. See? So that's a supplication. Intercession would be like, if I, if I, boy, I'd love if I could do this. God, this is what this person needs. But I don't, can't do that. But he can. Because he's God. Because he's God. And so he intercedes specifically. So think about that. And I think this is important. This isn't the only time. Paul mentions this over in Hebrews chapter 7. He knows every one of us. And I would understand this that on a regular basis, a daily basis, he's making a specific request. He's not, he's not, he's not cashing, he's not Jim Carrey, you know, in the, what was that? Um, God, what was it? Bruce Almighty. Bruce Almighty. Yeah, he's not going, answer yes to all. He didn't do anything like, you remember that? You know, he's, he, God lets him be God for a few days and he gets so tired of answering prayer requests, he just says yes to all, you know? No, what is Jesus? He... He's asking specifically for each and every one of us. Because what I may need at a moment in time may not be what Gary needs at a moment in time, may not be what Kenya needs or what Lewis needs. He knows each one of us needs this thing. And he's asking for that. So he's interceding for us. Then it goes on from here. Verse 35. Who will separate us? What does it say? From the love of Christ. We do have love of God down below because that's what the Father's doing, but this is the love of Christ. In other words, what can cause Christ to stop loving you and interceding for you? Nothing. Nothing. Even, even when you have done that thing that in your mind only deserves getting run down by a car in the street, he's still interceding for you because there's something he wants for you. Now that intercession, I, I'll, let's be honest, I'm going to be honest with this, I think, according to Scripture, that intercession may be, Father, it's time for him to come home. It could have been. the he father to get run over by a car. The, the son could have asked the father for that, for me, on my behalf. We, we think that, that that doesn't make any sense. But the son's going to look at it and say, he's doing more damage to the body and more damage to himself then, then is, is good. And he may say, it's time to stop this. And remember when the, fa and the father, the son doesn't, act, does, doesn't discipline. The father disciplines. The son judges. The father disciplines. And when the father disciplines, what's his attitude? Love. It's love. Hebrews 13, 6. He only disciplines those he loves. That's why he's not disciplining the world out there. You wonder why the world is the chaos it is and why isn't God smacking them up left and right? Because he didn't love them. He loved them when he sent the son, but he's not out there loving them every day. Or he'd be dealing with them. But he deals with us. So. He loves the, he loved the world in one perfect act, but he loves his children on a daily. On a regular daily basis, daily yeah. Basis. Just like the son is loving us. And that's what we're talking about. So if we go back over there and we'll... We'll tie this off if you guys are okay tying it off. Otherwise, we may, we may go on a little bit more. But he says in verse 9 and in verse 10, abide in my love. For you to abide in his love is to say, 
you know what, I'm, I'm okay with him interceding for me. And that, that means, you know, sometimes he's interceding going, you know, Father, Tim's lazy right now. And he needs to go through something that's going to challenge him and get him off of his spiritual butt. Can you say that in a Bible study? I just did. It's too late. He says, Father, and, and seriously, and, I, and, he, and I, I generalize that. The son, I think, is going to ask for something specific because it's an intercession. And he's going to say, Tim needs this right now. Because I, Tim's got way... Tim has more potential because of what we're doing him. This is true for every one of us. We all have an incredible potential for serving God because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our lives. It's not because we've got potential of ourselves. It's because of them. There's incredible things that they could do through us. Look what they did through a, through a fisherman, an unschooled fisherman. That didn't mean Peter was illiterate, but he had never gone through proper school training. And look what God did through a man like that that was willing to be used. And John, who also was a fishing partner with Peter. And look at what God did through him. See? So if God can do things through them, it's not like the apostles are up here and the rest of us are peons, we're down here. No, we're all part of the body of Christ. Yes. Okay, so I have a question. Abiding in, in my love. So you're talking about this, that... Um the discipline or the intercession, sorry, of Christ. So is is there any relation of that uh, to when it's talking about being content with what you have? If you're not content, you're kind of just like it's like saying, God, I don't I don't like what you have for me right now. I'm 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 not happy about this. I want to change this and make it the way I want it. Yeah, it's so 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 basically when you are genuinely being content with where you are, what God has for you right now or whatever, then you are abiding in his love. Is that right? That would be, yeah, that would be another application of that, yes. In so keeping, on keeping. the contrary, you're not abiding if you're saying, I don't like my circumstances and I want to change it. That's right. Unless you want to change your circumstances because they're not where they should be. Well, right. <laughs> but, but I know what you're saying. You're saying the right thing. We don't, I, I don't like the job I'm in. <clears throat> I don't like the house I live in. I don't like, it is. Yeah. fill in the blank. I don't like the car I drive. I don't know, whatever it is, you know. We've, and, and we're always trying to, it, the world tells us we got to always be improving. And what if God says, you know, we can let the world do this, and you guys can be okay with this. <laughs> and we're going. Oh, the world's always. This is what will make you happy. Oh, yeah. Six months from now, this will make you happy. Yeah, yeah, it's changing. changing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, anyway, that, uh, so yeah. So that is a part of it. I, that's a part of all of this. Being okay in His love is the fact that He's interceded. I mean, if you're if you're anyway, there, I could chase down rabbit trails with that. We're just going to stick with that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So in other words, being at ease in his love means being at ease knowing that he's interceding. And so things are being brought in. The Father is bringing things into your life because the Son has asked for specific things being brought into your life. And you ought to be able to go, this is, this is okay. This is, this is what God has for me. When you, when, you go to the, when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, uh, we can't fix that. Yep. And you're like, no, I don't. I want that fixed. 
or your spouse goes and, and it can't be fixed and sometimes that's even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I wish I could take my wife to the doctor and they could say, yeah, we can fix this stuff. And then she can see better and feel better and not be off. I don't, I don't have a lot of owies and problems. Like, like what? Owie. I don't know how else to describe it. I, don't, I, don't, I still struggle with it. I, it's, 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 what my, it's what my sweetie goes through that I feel, I feel bad for her that she has to deal with those things. And yeah, I would like God to fix all the... You think I haven't prayed for her over the years that God, can't you give us direction? Can't you fix this? Can't you help her? So she see, sees better and all, you know. Yeah, but being, learning to be okay with where God's put us at a given time and what God's doing with us. And opportunities that he's put in front of us. Anybody else? And there are a lot of believers that aren't at ease. I've used the illustration before of a person that used to attend our church many years ago, or well, a few years, a handful of years ago anyway, at least. And that person used to say on a regular basis, I'm just, the wor- if, you, if you knew what I was like, if you only knew what I had been like, if you only knew all the stuff that I've done, if you only knew, always was like, I'm so unworthy of his love. And I go, we all are unworthy. Oh, but you don't know how unworthy I am. In fact, my wife used to point out, almost like this person, it was like a point of pride how bad they were. But that aside, if you could set that aside, to say, and I used to tell this person that. We used to sit, we'd have a Bible study, and I don't know how many times after Bible study, I'd say, just be okay. Just thank him that he loves you that much. Don't sit there and grouse or, or feel, feel bad that you're so unworthy of his love. We all are unworthy of his love. Mm-hmm. The difference between your unworthiness and my unworthiness from a human perspective is so minute from the divine perspective. We're looking at it down here on this level, and it seems like this. From God's perspective, I can't reach high enough. It, it's, you can't even tell that there's a difference between my unworthiness and somebody else's unworthiness. We're all equally unworthy. So there's a part of this. Just enjoy and appreciate and be at ease with the fact that he loves you. Be at ease with the fact that Romans 8, that he intercedes for us, I would say, all the time. Or at least daily, or I don't know. He, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't give me. You get one intercession a day. He doesn't tell us that. I don't know how often he does. I the part in 1 John 2, too, also, where it says that he's an advocate, because when Satan comes yeah. in and says, oh, look at them, they don't deserve your love. You need love. But he's there being, saying, hey, I satisfied you, God. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's like not only is that for the person who thinks that they, they don't, you know, they, you can know that you are a sinner but still think that you're pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you can be a and you can be a believer like that, or you can be a believer that thinks that uh, I'm thinking of this person that I think you're thinking mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. and they um, they have been forgiven much, and so you know Jesus used that illustration: you've been forgiven much, you've loved much, and uh, the person I'm thinking about about really did appreciate what 
God has done for her because of her circumstances, but then it does need to be a completed action so that you can put that behind you. Because it sort of keeps you from going on, uh, on to maturity. This is what Jesus says we're to do, to be at ease two times. I want to, I, I had a question, we're not going to answer it here. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one answer. But it's a question for you to think about as, you, as we finish here. Why would you not be at ease in his love? Why would you not be at ease in his love? Okay, I'm not looking for you to give me an answer. I'm going to for you to answer it yourself. But this is the answer. This is the answer I think of. And I think the number one reason as believers that we're not at ease in his love is we spend so much, we spend so much time focusing on ourselves in this immediate situation instead of focusing on him and going, this is what he did. <laughs> if we think more about his character and what he's done and a little bit less about what we're doing down here and what our situation is, I think we'd be, we'd be better about it. Because as long as we focus on ourselves, when we're doing good, we're going, yeah! But when we're not, when we mess up, man, we are down. That's me walking around campus. I'm going to get run down by a car. I mean, that's the way. That's what it comes to when we're in that situation. That's Hebrews two, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's right. And the joy set before him endured the cross, and he's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. I that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3, I think, in there. Yeah. Which comes right along with the faith rest, because you can rest in what he's done for you, because he's done it all. And so then you can fix your eyes on him instead of your circumstances, mm -hmm. like the Hebrew Christians were doing. That's right. He's done it all, but he is continuing to do in your life. So it's not like, oh, phew, okay, that's, that's how, you know, what he did before. But it's like every moment, like someone was saying. Oh, the payment for sins is complete, but his work in you is long. Um, yes. Wow. Thank you. I like that. And going back to the Hebrews 12 passage, I like that there too. So. Okay. I'm going to end this. I think he